Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in this special Office Hours edition of the CMO Podcast is Maggie Gross, who leads Deloitte's brand practice. Maggie has been at Deloitte for about three years, and before that worked in brand strategy for about 13 years at PhD, Digitas, and Havas. She has worked on many great brands, including America Express, Samsung, Dos Equis, and Lysol. This episode, with a singular focus on brand value or brand worth, is especially timely. As we deal with soaring inflation and the potential of an economic slowdown, investments in brand marketing will be challenged and examined more critically. Maggie and her team at Deloitte have been doing lots of innovative work in the area of brand worth and what drives the financial value of a brand. Here is my conversation about what is likely the most pressing issue for most of you in your daily brand marketing work. Here's Maggie. Maggie, welcome to the special edition of the CMO Podcast. Our listeners cannot see this, but behind you is a really interesting collection of artwork. So we have to start. I'm staring at this beautiful (laughs) background behind you. What is on that wall and what's special about how you have it organized? Oh, man. Well, this is um, pretty much everything on the wall is a, a combination of my husband's and my picks. So... I'm in our office right now. And over my right shoulder, these are kind of Formula One and racetracks. And then there's a three-dimensional version of a racetrack over my shoulder. And that three-dimensional one is actually the racetrack that we live near, where my husband um, drives race cars. And then over this shoulder is some more race car stuff. And then the rest is Grateful Dead, a little bit of visual design, some space stuff, records, just a little mix of things we thought were, were fun and interesting. Your husband drives race cars? He does. And he's actually a C6 quadriplegic and he drives race cars with hand controls. Wow. And he started a foundation to help other people with spinal cord injuries get behind the wheel of track cars. So it's really, really cool. Oh, my. Oh, my. That's a story. That's a separate podcast. <laughs> it is. We could do a whole other episode on that. It's awesome. So let's keep with romance for a minute. How did you two meet? Well, are you familiar with the uh, NCAF, the American Advertising Federation mm-hmm. student ad yes. competition? So Torsten, Torsten did it in school. I did it in school. And he's a couple years older than I am. And I think a lot of times they look for regional judges that are just a couple years out of the program. He was the regional judge when I was graduating. And that's how we met. You met through advertising. I love it. We met through advertising. Yeah, it. exactly. And we're both strategists. So we, we talk shop at home and neither one of us gets bored. That's super. Well, anyway, this is an office hours edition. So we're dedicating this entire episode to the topic of what you call brand worth. Now, that concept, generally, we talk about almost on every episode of the CMO podcast in some way, shape or form with every guest. They might call it 
you know, the tension between brand and performance marketing. They might call it, how do I estimate my brand value? How do I, how do I talk business better with my CFO? It comes in lots of different languages and forms and concepts, but it's that same concept of brand worth and brand value. So I'm so happy to welcome you onto this episode and so eager to talk about this. So Maggie, let's get right into it. Why is this such a burning issue and a frequent topic (laughs) on the CMO podcast? Why are so many CMOs and so many companies in just about every category struggling with this issue? Well, I I think it has to do with um, the perception of marketing and advertising. Uh, A lot of times, I think historically, the CMO wasn't while they had a C in front of their name, they weren't always an equal C-suite partner. Mm-hmm. And so there's a perception that the marketing budget was bestowed upon them and that they were a cost center rather than a revenue driver. Um, and I think that's been perpetuated over time with honestly kind of attribution models and analytics mm-hmm. that were so focused on the result of a click on a website to a purchase. And that's not always how branding and marketing really works. I mean, we have clients today that come to us and say, five years ago, we stopped investing in our brand and we only focused on the things that were driving sales via our attribution models. And today our our brand has completely eroded and we can't even get close to the same results we had five years ago. What's happening? And we're like, well your brand has value and you kind of similar to a house, you kind of let your foundation crumble and now we have to do some serious work on it. So I think that's really why. Why do you think we have such a gap in learning in the industry? I know we're going to talk about some of the ideas Mm -hmm. you have in your role at Deloitte, but why is this such a gap with all the smart people we have and all the capabilities we have, all the computing power, all the data? Why is this still a challenge? You know, I think it's because it probably boils down to biology of right brain versus left brain. I think a lot of the people who are really successful and and like the wonderful leaders in marketing are creative thinkers who don't love math. And I think that some of the people that love math that work in our industry and help us figure things out really love the details. And there's not always that continuity between those two perspectives, which I think brand worth kind of unlocks a little bit. So it's really that right brain versus left brain coming together. Now you lead Deloitte's brand practice. I want you to talk about some of the pioneering work you and your team have done to help brands improve how they view the impact and see the impact of their brand on financial results, on business results. So I know it's a big question to start us here, but can you sort of give an overview on why and how you're tackling this? What is that approach like? And probably most importantly, what have you and your team learned on this journey? So the why is just curiosity, I think. Um, I'm a brand strategist by trade. And along, um, along with me are visual designers and other brand strategists in the brand practice. And I think all of us really believe that creativity is the most powerful force in the universe. We believe in the power of brands and we consistently felt like our clients were coming to us with those same challenges that you and your podcast guests grapple with all the time. How do I prove my value? How do I prove the impact? How do I, you know, explain to a CFO that this really matters? Um, and so ultimately, the way that Brandworth was created was looking at how to solve that problem, going back and finding 
if you're mathy and you're listening, it's, it's essentially a regression model, not to oversimplify mm-hmm. it, but when, when a brand grows or shrinks in its, we'll call it brand worth is what, what we call it, but in its brand strength, what is the resulting financial impact? And is brand a leading or a lagging indicator of financial returns for an organization? And so what we've started doing is modeling that out for our clients from day one. And beyond that is not just looking at what they can hope to achieve or what that business case could be for their brand, but within their category, what really drives the most financial return for brands. And then we build a brand strategy and and ultimately a brand visual identity and creative around that in order to help the client really succeed. So you're sort of bringing data and quant to the whole exercise Mm -hmm. of developing your brand framework, your brand strategy how you go to market, what's important in your brand. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, there's there's definitely been some learning. So to, to fully answer your question, you know, what have we learned along the way is things that sometimes make sense to us as marketers or brand people don't always translate to the CSO or the CFO. That's one of the ways that I think we've been really fortunate being part of a place like Deloitte is we've learned the language of the other C-suite and how to translate the things that seem so simple and so self-evident to us as marketers, to our clients' C-suite counterpart. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Now, I know every category and every brand is a bit different, but I think in your studies, at least what I've read about them in preparation for this, you found there are really four drivers of Mm -hmm. brand value. And I think you call them values alignment is the first one. Second is experience satisfaction. Third is message memorability. And fourth is most interesting share of culture. Yeah. So I'd like you to talk about each one of those. And are they consistent across categories? And if these are the real fundamental drivers of financial return on brands, what should our listeners think about doing with these? And let's start with values alignment and maybe tell us a a case or a story or some perspective on what you mean by values alignment and why in your in your research and your analytics, you found this is such a driver. Sure. So the four um, sort of layers of brand worth that you reference, those were identified when we started looking at all of the brands in our system. So we looked at over six thousand brands, sort of soft brand metrics, even funnel metrics for those brands, and then we correlated those with their sort of publicly available financial performance, and then maybe sometimes some non-publicly available given some of the data that we have access to. So we started to correlate the brands that are the most financially successful and also are the most kind of soft brand metrics successful. Mm -hmm. What do they have in common? And those are the four things that we identified that, that we call important in brand worth. That first one, you're right, values alignment. Those are brands who they understand what their audience really cares about and they kind of live a purpose beyond the things that they sell. 
Um, some of the brands that do really, really well there are the ones you might assume in sort of charitable places like a Special Olympics does amazing there. But even brands that aren't necessarily in a nonprofit space, Nat Geo actually does amazing there. Um, and uh, honestly, actually, Google does does really, really well, well in the values alignment. You just look at some of the work that those brands put out in the world. You can see that the brand leaders have created content that shows that this brand believes in something bigger than just the things that they sell. And I think that that's um, great examples of values alignment. Well, before we leave that one, you, look, you said you looked at brands that were financially successful and brands that had softer metrics. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us? When you say fans, financially successful, is it top line, bottom line, you know, market share over time? What sorts of things do you look at? And when you say the softer metrics, what's in that bucket? Yeah, I, I love that you're asking these questions because I could probably talk all day about this stuff. And sometimes I, I wonder if people think it's interesting. I so, do. And I think um, many of our listeners do. <laughs> Okay, this is great. So we actually, we pulled all of it in the beginning because we assumed we didn't necessarily know the right definition of financial success for a brand. So we pulled um, every publicly traded company or company with publicly held debt. We pulled all of their financial data every quarter going all the way back to 2016. So that includes stock price, market cap, goodwill, revenue returns, all kinds of funky little things that get tracked and measured every quarter. And again, if you're mathy, think about this as a giant spreadsheet. Those are all different columns. And then, so that's our sort of hard financial data. Then we have our, I like to call them soft brand metrics. Um, and that would be things like our funnel metrics, aided awareness, positive impression, all the things that you typically would track on a brand tracker. And then we asked a bunch of other, I think are kind of interesting questions. Like, do you think that this brand was enjoyable to buy from? Are you, would you consider yourself a satisfied customer? Do you think this brand has high quality products? Do you think that this brand represents good value for the money? All kinds of things. Um, and as an example, like one of the, one of the questions that we actually see really highly correlated with values alignment is, um, sort of perceptions of pride at working at, at a company mm. like this. Mm -hmm. Like, would you be proud to, to work for a company like this? And so we ask a bunch of questions in each of these um, sort of the hard metrics and the soft metrics. And what we did is we organized our spreadsheet of all of these brands going back to 2016 every quarter. And we said, what were their reported financial data? And then what is based on our um, database of people who have answered questions about these brands, what were their perceptions at any given time? And which ones were the most financially successful? And also, which ones do we have brand correlation to match that? Very impressive. So let's go to the second one, which is experience satisfaction. So experience satisfaction is a really cool one, I think, as well. Um, it really is related to not just experience of the product itself, but the purchase experience, which I think all of us as marketers really play a role in. And more and more, when we think about our role in marketing, it's not just bringing people into the funnel, it's nurturing them through the funnel. Um, and a couple of brands that do really well in experience satisfaction, you have your Amazons, your YouTubes, very digitally focused, um, you know, making things easier to buy or easier to use. But one example of one of my favorite brands that shows up well here is Band-Aid. And Band-Aid is probably the least digitally, I mean, I don't want to say Band-Aid is not a digitally enabled company, but what they, what they are and the product they sell is a quite 
analog product and for experience satisfaction to be so high for an analog product, I think speaks such volumes to what Band-Aid has done recently, which is a very human-centered design. They've, um, you know, changed some of the, the skin tones of Band-Aid to really re- reflect what people were asking for in order to achieve that experience satisfaction. I think that's a really great example of how marketing and product development can really um, support experience satisfaction. No, I love that example. I, I often get asked, you know, by people in CPG, consumer products, you know, the whole brand experience, we have limited control over that. And mm-hmm. I know I challenge that. I say, well, that may be limited thinking. But if you really do understand your customer's full purchase experience, you know, yeah. before they purchase, during the purchase, after the purchase, et cetera, et cetera, then you can design an experience that is simple, that is helpful, that is fast. And I think Band-Aid's a great example of that. Yeah, I love it. So the the third area or driver or layer is Mesrid's memorability. Now, I think I know what you mean by that, but I'd like you to expound on it. Yeah, that's probably what most of us as marketers think of when we think of brand tracking studies. Do people see your ads? Do they remember them? Or, you know, do they like them? Do they do they remember them for the right reasons? Um, but the brands that we see do really well there. Of course, it's highly correlated with spend. Otherwise, we wouldn't have media planners right. and really smart people in media that help us win in that area. But some of the brands that I get really excited about seeing, you know, the Geico show up in there because they spend so much and they also have breakthrough creative. But what I really see is consistent for brands that win in message memorability gets to breaking codes of the category. So you can achieve an outsized impact and not spend as much and still perform really well on message memorability if you're doing something different. Um, And one of my favorite examples is actually Duluth Trading Company. They perform pretty well on message memorability. They don't spend nearly as much as some of the competitors in there. But if you've seen any of their their ads recently, they're entirely different from everything else that's on TV. It's all animated and sort of hand-drawn. Even the voiceover actor is quite different. There's a different tone and humor. And I think that really supports that message memorability driver. Were there any under this category that really surprised you? I mean, you know, you think about Apple, of course, because of their presence and their spend and their creative. I mean, did they pop? Is there one that popped that you didn't expect to pop or, you know, anything that really surprised you in this category? Yeah, I mean, you can't we can't really talk about advertising without um, sort of fanning out over Apple. But what I was consistently surprised by is a brand that showed up in almost every bucket was Netflix. And I think what's interesting about Netflix is they weren't just advertising their brand. They're also advertising their products, their shows. And what they understand that I think is similar to probably what um, you know a PNG does really, really well is they understand that each product has a different use case and a different audience and a different media plan and a different creative. And they've somehow developed a really brilliant portfolio strategy that I think allows the brand to rise with each product's um, success. We had the CEO of one of the CEOs of Netflix in my program at Cannes this year, Ted Sarandos. And I asked him the question, how do you measure effectiveness of your marketing? And I'm sure he looks at more than this, but he quickly said the amount of conversations we generate. And 
you can't have a memorable message if you're not generating lots of conversations, right? And people talking about you and sharing things about you. It caused a lot of interesting discussion in the classroom about from other brands about are we really thinking about the conversations we generate? So I think a very powerful insight. You know, that's actually a perfect segue, not to push us along to the next layer, but that's exactly what share of culture measures. Um, and actually, Netflix performs probably the best of all of the brands on on that on that metrics, on that metric. And what that's really about, you know, message memorability, do you remember it? Did you like it? But you're right. It Just because I remember or like something doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to buy or watch. But that share of culture element, which is, am I talking about you with my friends and family? Am I hearing positive things about you in the news and media? That's actually what I see as one of the most highly correlated with customer acquisition and revenue returns of all four metrics. It, it varies by category, but if you're going to start as a brand, if you're going to start anywhere and, and you want to kind of achieve incremental returns, getting that share of culture is really, really important. Now, I'd like you to speak. You don't have to use a company name here if you don't want to, but you have this massive amount of data. You've done this uh, approach, this tool. You have these four layers. Can you speak to a company that maybe learned something from working with you in this tool and changed how they did their marketing, their business, their brand work, mm -hmm. and saw a change in the culture, maybe a shift in their business? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Um, so we worked with a, a bank brand, um, primarily a, a regional player, and most of their heritage and, and branding had been around location, being rooted in the community, kind of think about like what you imagine when you think of a retail bank. We're here for you, that kind of element. And um, their tone was a lot of values alignment. Um, they weren't doing a ton in message memorability. Experience satisfaction was all about kind of work, that, that warmth. And there wasn't a ton of share of culture either. And so when we started working with them, the first thing we asked is, how are you going to grow? Are you going to grow by being a retail partner that's friendlier and shares more values with your community? Or are you going to grow by understanding a, a different audience's need state and making things easier for them or integrating into their culture and supporting them? And what we ultimately found is for them, the growth was going to come from shifting from more of a B2C retail player to more of a sophisticated B2B banking partner. We found, um, you know, elements in their 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 brand heritage and their their brand experience that actually allowed them to shift into that. And we built a brand around that that was rooted in that ex more experience satisfaction place and more sh um, share of culture, understanding all the things that are happening in the B two B banking space, reacting to that. And when you think about culture, I think a lot of your listeners might think more on the Netflix side, but culture can be so many different things. It starts with deeply understanding the things that your audience cares about and talks about and participating in conversations with them about that versus just telling them about yourself. And that's that's one thing that I think was really successful. This, this bank brand in particular announced the shift, caused a, a massive growth, not only in their kind of quarterly earnings, but has completely repositioned them internally, externally, and done amazing things. So how's my good old alma mater PNG doing on share of culture? I mean, I think about Tide, <laughs> I think about Always, I think about Old Spice, all brands that have done very well and all really yeah. had an objective of getting into conversations 
And, yeah. and so, uh, and, and there are many more, but I think of those three brands when I think about my alma mater. Well, and what I love about Tide, like just the P&G portfolio at large is again, what, what they do that we just talked about that Netflix does really well as well is they deeply understand that each product has a different yeah. audience. Yep. And the way that they show up and participate is different based on that. And they're also, you know, share of culture takes a little bit of bravery as a marketer because you're not in control. You're showing up and you're participating with people and you're kind of, you know, you're letting go a little bit. Um, but if you can do it right and you do it with, um, I guess, the right attitude and the right energy, it, it can really propel the growth. So our listeners are always interested in benchmarking and like brands that, that inspire others. And we talked about Netflix quite a bit already in this discussion. If you could share with our listeners some other brands that on all four of your layers sort of rock it. So if there were, I don't know, three to five brands or companies that you would hold up as, hey, these are brands that we can all learn a lot from, what would they be? It's a little bit unfair unfair to say these brands perform well on all categories because part of the benefit of brand worth is that not every layer is created equal in every category. And so what we do is, you know, in hospitals, as an example, if you're going to, if you're going to really focus, you should focus on experience satisfaction because the other elements are not driving people's choice as much as, as that versus in hotels, it's something different In automotive, it's something different. So it'd be a little bit um, more accurate to say, you know, within a certain category, you know, this is what really matters. And these are brands that, that perform quite well. Um, it gets a little complicated to, to do that across like hundreds of, of different categories. But I will say, I think, you know, Netflix is, is one of those brands that just shows up well in all four in their category. Share of culture happens to be the core driver, but they're, mm-hmm. they're firing on all cylinders Amazon does does pretty well in all four categories. Um, Google shows up in in all four categories pretty well. Apple as well, um, but it's not it's not like a lot of other maybe brand ind- indexes or indices where the brands that just show up are the the most valuable, most well known brands that we all think of. Um, you know, kind of missing from that list. Um, are probably some brands that we all think of that show up on the typical brand strategy slide. and But they show up in their own right, in their own category where it matters, which I think is why we all really respect them. So I think it's interesting that categories have such widely, I know, variant drivers. So I think that's an important one to understand. And I think when you start thinking about, well, we admire on Google, Amazon, Netflix for this. It's an important checkpoint to say, do we really understand in our category, whether, whether it be automotive or or landscaping or whatever it might be, what are the drivers of preference and brand value in these categories? And you're saying that it's it's not a safe assumption to say that these four are important in all categories. They're not equal. Not in equally all important. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there's a there's a slightly different mix that you want to hit based on whatever business you're in. Um, and so usually when we sit down with clients, we, we show them that on day one, we show them here's, here's the sort of dynamics that are at play in your category. Here's what everybody else is doing. And actually here's what drives the most success. So if they're zigging, you can zag. Here's how you stack up. And here's the things that we think that your brand strategy should do in order to, to help you win. Maggie, I want to shift into a little discussion about 
culture in companies because obviously, however great your knowledge and your tools and your methods are, if it's not adopted by a culture, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. You know, to fully embrace the learning from this work you and your team are doing, you know, how do you think the leadership model needs to change? The clients that you've worked with that Mm. really have embraced the learning and activated it, what were the conditions? What was, how did the leadership kind of take this new thinking in a way and bring it back home? Because every, I mean, we talk a lot about the brand is only about the behavior of the people who work on it, right? That's all people see. Mm. So what have you learned about changes in a culture to embrace this learning and to bring it to life? A very important thing to call out that that we typically do in the first meeting is level set on what a brand should be. And um, our point of view is your brand is not just a marketing or a creative asset. It is a financial asset that should be driving growth. And typically when we come into the room and it's, it's never usually just us. Sometimes the culture of an organization, they need a, an external third party that tells people what to do. But in our experience, the most successful brand transformations happen in partnership where an agency sometimes pushes, but the client is the one that's in the driver's seat. Um, and so call it on that first day, we come in and we level set and we explain the vision of what brand really can be. We show them the data that explains that, you know, brand is a revenue driver, not just a cost center. And we set up benchmarks about what we think we can achieve by this brand transformation. Typically, by talking about brand through that language, it no longer feels like it's only marketing's purview and everybody gets really excited to be involved. It's when it turns into kind of like a land grab or you're using language that not everybody fully understands that, that folks get intimidated. And sometimes you, you run into that, that change management um, challenge. But as long as you bring people along and you do it, um, you know, with marketing, like I said, in the driver's seat, we usually find it, it goes pretty well. When you think about all this work you and your team have been doing over the last years, what's the new frontier or what's the next frontier? For me personally, uh, I get really excited about, I think that visual design is highly underrated for its impact on how people make choices. And maybe not just visual design, but package design, experience design, all of those things. I think they're often a sub department in marketing. But even when we were talking about it, you know, it's, it's the whole part of marketing. You know, marketing might be right now filling the funnel. But moving people through the funnel is so many elements of design that, that we can kind of tweak and, and play with. And I, I was an economics major and, and sort of like a game theory nerd. So that stuff just really, really excites me about the little things, the nudges you can do to kind of push people further, which I think is maybe not exactly the frontier, because I think sometimes frontier feels very tech focused. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow our business by leaps and bounds. You have worked, I don't know, 13, 14 years before Deloitte in strategy for a number of organizations that are highly respected, you know, Havas, Digitas, PhD. You seem really kind of turned on jazz by this work you're doing now. What is it about this work, this time, this team, this market opportunity that has you so excited? Um, you know, the, the people that we have brought together under under the roof under the banner of Deloitte I I have such respect for their creative craft 
um, as well as for our strategic rigor. Um, you know, I, I like to say we're solving business problems, not just marketing briefs here. And that is for me as a strategist, really, really exciting. You know, it, it gets me out of bed every day a little bit faster. Um, it's not to say that there's not amazing ad agencies that aren't, aren't doing similar work, but I think based on our proximity to Deloitte and, or, you know, being within Deloitte, but our proximity to the business challenges that our consulting partners are solving every day, we just get a little bit closer to understanding the true problem. You know, a lot of times when I was at an agency, there'd be a little bit of a loss of fidelity of handoff between business strategy and marketing. And there's not that here. We're sitting at the same table um, you know, talking about what this might mean from a brand. I was on a call this morning with somebody that's thinking about a new co versus a spin co, um, you know, an, an organization that might be spinning off part mm-hmm. of their business and helping them understand what that might mean from their brand strategy for day one. How do they communicate with employees? How do they rename? Um, all of those things are just things that you typically don't have access to inside of an agency until it's kind of been locked up into a PowerPoint already. And that's what's really exciting. You work with a lot of people in the C-suite. You work with a lot of CMOs. We're in difficult economic times, right? Soaring inflation, very uncertain future. Uh, what do you see as the conditions or the characteristics of the characteristics versus the conditions of really, really top CMOs today? A hundred percent. It's partnership and teamwork. I've been really fortunate to work with a number of CMOs Every single one of them was brilliant in their own capacity, but the ones who I see who make the biggest impact both in the organization and in their own personal resume are the ones that don't think that they have all the answers, um, which is hard because they probably do, but but have the... Um, have the ability to walk into a room and speak last um, and to, to understand that their job is not to, to push people, but to like lead people. Um, and, and that leadership and teamwork is just so, so important, especially now when, when people are afraid. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I want to sort of get to the wrap up of this wonderful session. From all this stuff that you've learned over your career and especially the last couple of years, leave us with a few pearls of wisdom for those people leading brands out there who are listeners, who want their brand to be better, want want their customer experience to be better, want their brand to create more financial value? I think, you know, if you're going to think about what your brand stands for, we talked about those four layers of of brand worth. They may not all carry the same weight, but if you're going to sort of assess where your brand stands today, think about, you know, what values does, does your customer have? What do they care about? And how does your brand support that? Then as the next step, what, what is the current experience of purchase and sort of ownership or use of your product? What are all the touch points? We sometimes call these moments of intersection. Mm-hmm. Where can you actually show up and help somebody get better? Then think about, you know, are the messages that you're putting in market, are they just leaning on codes of the category or are they really disrupting? And then finally, when you think about the audiences that you really want to attract, do you understand what they're saying when you're not there? And are you willing to show up in that room and participate with them in those conversations? And I think if you think about it through through those four layers, you ask yourself questions and you come up with a plan in each in each one, you're probably going to wind up doing pretty well and driving a, a, a pretty good growth for your for your company. 
Maggie, that's a beautiful place to stop. That is a playbook, if you will, for key questions, right? We're all about the questions we ask as leaders. And I think those are brilliant four questions everyone who's listening now can ask with, on their team and, and on their brand. So I'll give you one shot. I've been interviewing you with all these interesting, thoughtful, tough questions about your artwork and your husband and, and, and brand worth. I'll give you the chance to ask me a question before we sign off. Yeah. What was the most challenging brand that you had to um, transform at PNG and how did you do it successfully? Oh, no doubt it was Pampers. It was really? Pampers uh, going back to the early days of brand purpose. Frankly, I was leading Pampers. It was um, I was working in Europe at the time. I was leading Western European Pampers. It was a category job across you know many, many, many countries. It was PNG's largest brand and its most challenged one. Shrinking market share, poor employee morale, um, bad profitability. It was a category that we had invented and we had lost our way, getting beaten by regional competitors, private labels, Kimberly Clark, you name it. That was hard because it's a very capital intensive category. And in a way, the category was very dominated by our wonderful engineers who do who did miraculous work but they were sort of calling the shots and we weren't listening enough to moms and dads and parents and so the cultural change was we're in the baby care business let's start behaving and acting that way and caring a lot for what parents cared about mm -hmm. and, and that was understanding brand drivers and understanding the cut the the uh you know families better and to have a culture that mm -hmm. just sought to delight people in the whole experience. I mean, we had diapers mm -hmm. back then that, that the tapes cut skin that smelled mm. like oil. I mean, you know, there yeah. was some low hanging fruit. It, it wasn't easy to solve some of those, but some low hanging fruit. But the turnaround was changing a very large global culture to be one about parents and babies and not about machines. And, and, mm. what, and what happened within 12 years, the, once we started turning that corner, the revenue tripled. And, and the revenue tripled on P&G's biggest brands. We're talking about real numbers here. Uh, margins improved massively. And, and, and most importantly, parents and babies were having a much better experience. That's awesome. Yeah, that you started with like the value is baby care. Yeah. We all care about babies more than anybody else. And then you built from there. That's yeah. awesome. And there's a podcast that our listeners can listen to. I recorded this summer with Mathilde Delhomme, who's the CMO of LVMH fabulous luxury company. She was there at the beginning of this Pampers turnaround. She was a key leader in that. And we talked about that in that podcast about what happened in that category that we all learned so much from. So I recommend that episode actually for you, Maggie, and for anyone else listening. She's a wonderful leader. She's in an amazing job now. And she was part of the team that, that made that Pampers story happen. That's awesome. Can I ask one other question sure. just as a follow-up? Because I'm very interested. If, if there was such an engineering-focused culture how did you how did you move that to be more of a moms and babies or parents and babies focus? Like, how did you? We, we, we brought the voice of parents into the room. The once these engineers see the opportunity, the issues we were having mm -hmm. with our consumers, they were the first to say, oh, my, my, we must fix this. So, you yeah. know, it, it was it wasn't us coming in and preaching, selling. It was really in a in a very humble way, just bringing the people we were serving actually into our offices, 
into mm-hmm. our discussions, into our meetings, into our visits together. So we massively became um, a very, very parent-centric company and not just in marketing and customer insights in every discipline. That's awesome. What a great story. It is a good story. And I, you know, I, I continue, as you can tell, I continue to be inspired by it. And, uh, and I think, and, and they set, Pampers set an example for a lot of other P&G brands, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of how they thought about brands. So it was uh, not only the biggest brand, but it was a very influential brand. And once it started to turn the flywheel, everyone wanted, internally wanted to know more what, what was going on. And I think it was, a, it was a catalyst for much better financial results across brands at P&G. All right, Maggie, we'll end we'll end on baby care. We started on brand worth, we're ending on baby care. <laughs> that sounds so, great. Thank you for this, Maggie. It was wonderful. And good luck and stay in touch as you continue to evolve this. I think it's really important work. It's a big gap in our industry and good for you and your team for tackling it. Thank you so much, Jim. Hope you have a great afternoon. Thank you. Same to you. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.